This is the DX Podcast, proudly presented by Wondrous. On this, the penultimate episode of the first season, Mirko and Peter speak with Javier from Google. Hello, and welcome to the DX Podcast number nine. Um, today we have Javier Bagas Avila. So we're based in Basel, and uh, if you have anything to do with psychology in Basel, or in Switzerland for that matter, you know who Javier is, because he is uh, the founder and used to be the head of the HCI lab at the Institute of Psychology here in Basel. And he's been instrumental in building up what UX research means in Switzerland and being a mentor for some of the brightest minds in Switzerland who work in UX today. So we're very glad to have him. And I'm very much looking forward to learning how and why he switched from academia to working at Google and shaping how Google does UX research. And he's been doing it for almost 10 years now. And I think that's going to be an interesting conversation. And I'm really excited to have uh, you by my side for this, the ninth uh, DX podcast, Mirko. And before we kick off uh, with our discussion with Javier, which I'm also really excited about, I thought we might have a short chat. You've been with uh, with us for about two years now, right? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Maybe you could uh, give us a quick intro on yourself, uh, what you do for Wondrous. Yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Mirko Kinley. I'm a senior front-end developer here at Wondrous. And I spend most of my time building websites, building web applications. What does that mean, most of your time? Uh, I also do a bit of project management. Um, I do design feedback sometimes. And and tell me quickly, um, what do you do in your spare time when you're not uh, at Wondrous? I do a lot of hiking. Um, I also uh, ride a road bike from time to time. Not enough. No, not enough. But I, I, <laughs> I think uh, walking is much easier. Walking up mountains is easier than uh, riding a bike, so I've switched mostly. Why is your English as good as it is? Well, I grew up in California. My dad was a journalist, and we moved there when I was five, and we stayed there until I was ten. Um, well, I, I have a background in psychology, so um, I've, I've been following uh, Javier and, and the Institute for HCI for a while. What? I didn't know you had a background in psychology. Yeah, I have, a, I have a bachelor's in applied psychology. Oh my God, so that could have been a direction that you may have gone in. Yeah, and it's one that I was thinking about, and I, I was very interested in UX research for a while, mm-hmm. but then I decided I'd, I prefer to actually uh, do the technical side of it. Okay. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Um, is there is there anything in, in that realm that you're still, um, in, well, obviously still interested in it, right? I mean, yeah, you can't really get rid of it. And uh, I, have, I have a premonition that Javier will be talking about uh, his background in clinical psychology and how that prepared him for uh, his work in UX research. And I think that's something... I've taken from my psychology background as well, although I never worked in clinical psychology. Oh, is, is, is that the doorbell? I think uh, Javier might be here. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Javier. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming around so much. It's, uh, we're uh, really excited to have you. Do you want to explain a little bit about um, your past? Yeah, sure. 
Yeah, so as you said, my name is Javier. I am like Secondo, what you call here. So uh, my parents immigrated from Argentina, hence my name, but I've been born here. Um, I, I've studied psychology here in Basel, grew up here, and um, I focused on the field of human-computer interaction very early on um, and went after studying to consulting in that field and went back to academia, built up a lab focusing on HCI, UX-related questions. One of my former students works for you, so <laughs> you know the drill. Um, I did that, did my PhD there, and then in uh, 2011, I moved to Google uh, to be a UX researcher there, and uh, uh, shortly after started to manage and build research teams across the company and different products in YouTube, been in ads for a while, and now in, in cloud. My kind of, I think my main thoughts that are going in my head is like, how, how did you go from tech to psychology? I need to go back to like beginning of when I decided to study psychology. I, I did what most people do when they decide to study psychology. I want to become a clinical psychologist. So help people like Sigmund Freud, all that kind of stuff was in my head. Uh, and most psychologists do that when they... Um, start to study psychology that's kind of like the picture they have of psychologists like one-on-one setting helping people with with problems um but i also had this other side that i had since uh, i was a kid which was like i was fascinated about technology computers build up computers in my room like gaming and graphics and all these kind of things so i, I did I did a lot there i had this passion but i always knew i didn't want to become a programmer i didn't want to study like software engineering that was not coding was never my passion um and so i decided to go to psychology and there i the first two years i did like the normal program everyone does uh, with the idea to to continue in that direction um even worked like as a probation officer helping people out of jail and, and these kind of things which was very interesting. And then we had like a visiting professor from uh, Germany that um, had done a couple of years in the US and he um, had learned about this field of human computer interaction. So he did like like a basic intro course. And, and that's when I realized, oh, there is like an entire field within psychology that looks at how people interact with technology and what can go wrong and what you need to do make sure it, it it doesn't go wrong and so that was fascinating to me the fact that there was actually an area where you could apply um psychology to technology and um i remember thinking about that and um then uh, a colleague of mine um, a student said hey that was that was the area of the internet boom so everything was internet that's before the bubble and he was like oh we should we should just create a company in that field and offer consulting. And I was like, well, but we don't actually know anything about that. We're just started. And he was like, ah, it doesn't matter. And so we, uh, we did that. We had also a couple of, of these consulting gigs, uh, which in hindsight were totally embarrassing. But <laughs> <laughs> um, it was great to get like uh, a feel. And because it was the time of the internet bubble, like people were desperate for that kind of knowledge because nobody knew like everything was starting and um 
And so I did that. And then I remember there was like this moment where I had to take the decision. Should I continue to be a clinical psychologist or should I change? Um, and so there I took the decision. No, I'll follow where my passion is. I have a lot more passion about um, technology than I have for this one-to-one setting. Um, also, I felt like you have to invest a lot of time to help one person and make maybe a big difference in that person's life compared to UX where I thought you can invest uh, your energy into making a small difference but for many people. Mm-hmm. And so that was more fascinating to me, the the scale. And so that's when I started to focus more on that. I read a lot. I did my... Um, master's thesis in that field i found a professor who was open to that and and let me do all these things and yeah the rest is history so that's how and that was incredibly new at the time right it was something that that wasn't you know you didn't have uh, user experience positions open at at companies it was something that um, maybe a client wouldn't think okay that's something that i'd like to invest in is is to um, enhance a user experience yeah I have to say, in in Switzerland at that time, there was nothing. I mean, there was the field of HCI was is much older, and so in the in the states or in 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 England, they they were heads, and so there were entire programs you could study, but we didn't know that, and so that's why it was rather new here. Um, but it was obviously from another field, right? It came from ergonomics and usability and all these kind of things, so it was developing. And the internet changed a lot of that, right? With the internet and with the possibility to create something that has access to billions of users, uh, suddenly companies had to think about UX as a differentiator. So there wasn't really an HCI program in Switzerland at the time. Did you like? Did you build that up yourself, or was there already something existing that you built on top of? So yeah, there was nothing at the university. Uh, of, of Basel, there was actually also no program really across Switzerland. I mean, there were people in the field working that were kind of like self-taught and moved in that direction. There were maybe single courses in different universities. Um, after I focused on this and finished my master's, as I said, I went back, I went I went uh, to consulting. I did consulting for a couple of years. And uh, and then my former professor who had hosted my master thesis, he was fascinated about that area. And so he asked me, would you like to come back and build that up at the University of Basel as a focus? And so that was fascinating to me because I always liked education. I always liked working with students and mentoring them and growing them. And so being able to shape an entire generation of people who work in that field was very fascinating. So that's where, when I went back and I built up that lab that is still around nowadays. Well, thanks for building up that lab. We now have uh, one of your ex-students working for Wondrous. (laughs) And actually a lot of the applications that we're getting are coming from from the lab still. So uh, it seems like you've built up something very sustainable there. Yeah, there is a lot of good people coming out of there. We have also at Google, um, recently we met everyone that came from this lab and it was like 10 people in Zurich Okay, that um, had kind of like an alumni meeting, so that was cool. Uh, one of them is even like in New York, Google New York and stuff, but he was visiting. So yeah, that was fascinating. A, yeah, pr- a it's proud still moment. <laughs> yeah, it was like all the little children. Yeah, it was, it was good. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. 
So how, how did you get to Google from, from there? Were you headhunted or is it a, an active decision you made yourself? So, yeah, that's a good question. So I was really happy in academia and, and running that lab and everything. But I also knew that it would, it would not be forever because the academic system is very rigid and, and old and doesn't allow, has no flexibility in trying to keep people. So it was clear I, was, I had done my PhD. I was in my postdoc. I was running this lab. I had a permanent position, but it was clear that if my professor ever gets retired, I will be in a very bad spot. And I would never get a professor position at that university because I had studied there. I had done my PhD there. So there's all these implicit rules that you're expected to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also didn't want that. I didn't want to leave Switzerland. Um, and so I knew there would be a time where I need to go somewhere, but I also couldn't imagine where. And I always joked to my wife and said, um, there's only two companies I would leave the university for. That's Google or Apple. These were like that, that's, mm. these were like the two places I could imagine going to, which is funny because these two companies are really different, which I learned afterwards. Mm. Um, and so I did. I went to Denmark for three months to work with a professor there, um, and during that time, I got an email from someone from Google that they were looking for people in Zurich. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting that email and not taking it serious at all. I was like, yeah, sure, Google. And so I wrote back and said, like, yeah, sure, I'm interested. <laughs> and, and that's how, the, how that all um, started. And then, um, yeah, the interview started. Uh, so I, I went back to Switzerland and I did the phone interview and then the on-site and all of that. And, yeah, so that's why, that's how I got to that job. And you've been there for 10 years now. Almost, yeah. Jeez, that's a, a long time to spend in any company. Yeah. Um, so you're obviously happy. Uh, I am, yeah. It's it's a really great place to be. Um, yeah, yeah. It's a lot of opportunities and a lot of really smart and nice people. So, well, that's the good thing about working for such a, a big company. You get to see a lot of different things and you get to work with a lot of different people. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like the there's very international. You have people from so many different cultures and. Uh, different backgrounds and and like and really really s- smart and well-intended people and you have so many products at Google that you can change if you're bored in one product you can go somewhere else so I've been in YouTube I've been in ads I've been in cloud now and so it, it's good to know you have these options um, and are not like constrained to one single product area and if you're bored you need to leave the company yeah, of course so you've spent like roughly 20 years thinking about the user experience. Um, any secrets you can share? Yeah, there's no secrets. <laughs> there's no secrets in that field. Yeah, I mean, um, I think for me, the one of the, the key things I've always seen that is a, is a big difference between people who are successful in the field or not, um, like from a, from a craft perspective, is, is the empathy aspect. Like you being able to completely immerse in, in what other uh, people do, understand that and take that into account and feed it back into product development. And um, the better you are with that, with understanding, with getting into that zone where you can feel that empathy, um, but also translating that into what it means to feed that into product development and not be like this foreign element in product development that keeps on ringing the bell about the users 
and does not care about translating that into product development steps. So these are to, that's how you can have impact and it will always be a compromise, right? It will never be perfect for the user because it, the user is not the only aspect, right? You have the business aspects um, too and, and you have legacy um, from, from your environment and constraints from the technology. And so it will always be a compromise between these factors. And so there's UXers who get that, mm. who, who invest deeply into understanding the users and understand how to feed the essence back into product development and, and make it work. And then there's the other ones who, who are like these lonely Don Quixote knights who are like, think it's like fighting product development. It's fighting these stupid product managers because they, they don't know about users. And then it becomes that fight that at the end, the end result is even worse than if they would have compromised. And so for me, that is one of the secrets if you want to be successful in that field. I think that's a really interesting aspect. Also, um, working for a company like Google, you have how many users are using your products? Billions. billions, billions yeah. And you're trying to create a product that works for billions of people. And I, uh, you know, that's not possible. Um, at the end of the day. Well, it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, creating the products, but creating the perfect user experience is because every person is, is so different. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, 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 and to me, like, if, if you realize that as a UX specialist, you have a lot of tools to understand the users and you will be able to feed a lot of insights back into product development. But at the same time, you need to stay humble, right? Mm -hmm. You are not the one who knows everything about users. And not every insight you have is important. And so being able to, to understand what the essence is that you need to feed back to make the product better, mm -hmm. not perfect, um, is really important. Right? Sometimes uh, people in UX overestimate um, their knowledge. And, and so I, there's cases where they ring the bell and they say, this will be like a complete cluster. If you do that, we're really bad. And... And uh, and then you do it and you launch it and you realize it was actually not not as bad, right? And so staying humble within that and understanding you're a cogwheel in product development mm -hmm. and an equal playing partner to, to product, to engineering, and like the product will only be good if the three disciplines closely collaborate and, and make this work. Does it, is that th something that you think... Um helps also that you come from this academic background is is your um you know the 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 notion of i don't know anything at all um and and not having that kind of um you know coming from the product side you might think okay um i i know exactly what my uh, users need or what my product needs to be for in that, in that regard, yes. I mean, being a, a researcher and basically starting from the point where I don't know anything, let's, let's get data, let's try to understand, being curious about something is certainly an advantage. But I don't think this helps you to understand afterwards what is important and what not, basically cleaning all the noise and reducing it to like, here's these three insights that will make this product a lot better mm -hmm. and then fighting for them. And so a lot of the learning process that people go through when they start working in industry is exactly that taking all the tools they learned in academia applying it to to uh, product development getting all these data and then understanding what 
what is important. Whereas I always say, like, what's the hill you want to die at, right? You can't have, you cannot have a hundred hills, right? You can have two or three, right? And it's not good if it's a hill you want to die at, but you say it's important, right? And, um, and then focus on these and try to get these into, into the product roadmap mm-hmm. um, is the only way you will be able to achieve like a tangible, measurable impact on, on user. Okay, cool. Um, you mentioned before um, when you were still working in clinical psychology, it was always about helping one person. Like you um, mentioned working as a, in, in parole, helping people uh, re-socialize when they got out of jail. And, and now you switch to making a difference for lots of people. How, how do you define success in that for yourself? Like not in business metrics or anything. Like when do you feel that you've accomplished what you aim to accomplish? I think, so the moment um, you made lives, so in a very meta level, it's like the moment you improved people's lives, and that can be in a very small level by something just working, right? That's a success to me. So um, it doesn't have to be always like users doing something and loving your product, right? I work in cloud, right? And so cloud is super technical space and everything. And so you creating the same joy moment that you might create when you are working on YouTube right, is, is really difficult, right? Because it's a work context and everything, right? But you making something just work and people being able to do their jobs and, and, and save time and frustration, that's uh, the, the ultimate goal. And so seeing that people are satisfied with the, with the, with the products, that they're buying them, that they're using them, that they're promoting them, right? These are the kind of things we aim for. That's kind of also what they say about bassists, isn't it? It's like if you take away <laughs> the bass from a track, you notice it. But if it, you, when it's in the track, you can, um, yeah, it's, it's it kind of, it's like a carpet. Um, yeah. It, it ties yeah. the whole thing yeah. together. N- no, nobody <laughs> listens to music because of the bass. <laughs> but if it's not there, you will realize something important is missing. Yeah, I mean, I never thought about it that way, but yeah. To a certain extent. Um, but you're a bassist. I am a bassist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we talked about this quickly when you were here for the meetup. When was that? Was that last year or this year? I can't remember. It was um, last year. Yeah. But we definitely talked about it. The fact that, that you played in a band. Back then it kind of um, it gave you a bit of a, um, a bolster to, to your self-confidence also. Yeah, that I think, I mean, and all of us, the four of us, we still... Um, meet for dinner every week uh feel the same like that being on stage being in a place where you expose yourself um and you make yourself judge like you're, you're exposing yourself to judgment right you're on stage and the crowd might love it or might hate it and they will show that to you um is a really important thing that at this at that time when i was doing it i didn't realize how it would impact the rest of my career it was just fun, right? I was like 16, 17, 18, um, and, and was doing that because obviously we wanted to be rock stars and, and famous and everything, right? And so uh, that, in the beginning, that was brutal because the stage fright was brutal. It was killing us. Like, um, And then through time, we uh, acquired a lot of routine, and so we had like more than 150 concerts in, in our band career. And so um, a lot of... 
and and we were good at it and we we knew how to move the the crowd and, and we knew how to read it and and that later on translated into um all all these kind of business contexts where i need to perform in front of people this can be yeah in a talk with people i don't know but it can also be i need to present in front of my vp right mm -hmm. i am not nervous when i have to do that if i have talk in front of people i am not nervous i know what i do i know how to read the audience i know how to perform in, in front of an audience and that gave me a lot of um advantages in my career including getting the job at google i i remember when i went for the on-site interviews which is really um, intense at google it's like an all-day like six interviews you have to present something there's group discussions and so on um I remember preparing for that well on what I wanted to say and then going there and I was so focused and I was so owner of that entire day that I left with a feeling if I don't get the job, it's not my fault. Mm -hmm. I gave everything I could. I think it went well. And if it's not enough, it's not enough. Then I'm not smart enough. And, um, and so, yeah, I believe that's a long way of saying being on stage and, and, and playing music helped me uh, throughout my entire career up until today. That's, uh, that's good to hear. Um, can we talk about your other hobby? Um, yeah. I, I've, I've, I was uh, I'm talking to Noah, um, who you know from, uh, from your days at the MMI Institute here in Basel. Um, she mentioned that you make tables. Um, so we were talking before about creating products for billions of users. And then in your spare time, it seems uh, you, you build tables, which is like obviously not for billions of users. It's for maybe one specific user. Yeah. Is that something that you'd like to talk about? Or are you like, ugh, no. Totally. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah, so that is, I, when I started at Google, I was a researcher. And then uh, I started to manage small teams, but I always kept doing research myself a little bit and then managed. And the teams were like three, four, five people. So I was able to do some research. Um, as I moved along in my career, there was a moment when there was a big reorg and I became the manager of managers. So suddenly I had like this large org. I mean, large sounds huge, but it's with 20 people. But I had like four managers who were managing these pockets of researchers. And I was no longer able to do research myself. And so I, I, I started doing this. And after half a year, I realized that I was no longer happy. Like something was missing I did. I was enjoying managing people and growing them, and, and and having all these discussions and making sure the team works well. But somehow, at the end of the day, I was only writing emails and having meetings, and, and and so there was nothing tangible I could look at and go like, "I'm proud of that." And at that time, my son asked me if I could make him a wooden sword, and so I looked it up on YouTube how to make a wooden sword, and I tried it, and it, it was horrible. And so I tried it again, and it was better. And so I bought, bought a couple of tools and I tried it again. And then at the end, um, he was happy and he said, like, can you make me a shield? So I made a shield. And so, and so I started to do woodworking, which I had done when I was like a, a kid. I worked with uh, wood. And so uh, that's how the entire thing started. And so I made a table for us at home, which, which was a, in hindsight, a horrible failure. But at that time, I was proud of it. And, um, and then like friends asked, oh, can you make us a table too? And so um, that's how this entire thing started. And then I realized I became better at it and, and, and working with the hands and getting dirty and, and, and being able to focus, getting in the zone alone, nobody else there, not having to speak, just being, 
you and the wood was fascinating and then being able to make these tables that would then be the center point of a family because that's one of the places you spent most time at right the table the kitchen like the family together and and knowing that uh, i was doing something that they might have their entire life because if if i make you a table right it will not be ikea right this will be a table that no one else has and um i use I know how to source the best wood and I know how to adapt it exactly to what you need and everything. And so um, these tables that I make nowadays, if you have them made, made by someone professional, you might pay like five, five, like 10 or 12,000 francs, right? And um, you don't pay that to me. <laughs> <laughs> I do only for the material costs. And so uh, knowing that you can do something like that and give, give something like that to someone who couldn't afford that, was just making me happy and so that's kind of like an, an additional thing that i need this is super important for me nowadays to be able to be happy to have that place where i go and i do these things that have nothing to do with technology and and big scale and billions of users um but on the contrary it's like very focused on very small scale and incredibly unique as well thank you if you want a table you know where to find me <laughs> and how long uh, how long uh, up front do i have to order uh, well, yeah, there's some waiting lines, so <laughs> it, might, it might take half a year until you get it. So it's not IKEA; you can't go there and just take it with you. So you'll there's some planning phase involved and sourcing of the materials and and everything. But yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah, half a year ain't bad. <laughs> uh, so, so are you doing research again? Have you been able to to integrate that back into your work? Are you still managing managers and and building tables on the side, and that helps you? get that that input or i i am not doing research myself anymore yeah. i'm but i'm very close to research um uh, i i i stay very close to the discipline so i mean there's different models of, of making career at google um and if you obviously you move up the, the the ladder there is like this point where you become very detached from the core craft and what you do is like building the organizations and and handling all the performance reviews and promotions and, and planning of budgets and, and all that stuff, right? And that piece, like, that was never the most fascinating to me. For me, it was always interesting and I have a lot of passion to be close to the craft, close to the people who do it, help them grow them. I come from academia, right? I, I helped a lot of people start the career there and, and, and grow them, mentor them. And so that was super important to me. So I'm still very close to the craft. I know what people are doing. I can help them if they get blocked, right? These kind of things. And so I feel like I'm part of the research process, but I'm not really doing the research myself. Do you have a, like a personal definition for user experience? Um, well, the short answer is I don't have a personal definition. I mean, there is a definition um, out there from... Was it the ISO or I don't know one of these organizations? Um, in 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 a in a wider concept for me, um, UX means um, the entire like then the holistic aspects of your product that creates the experience that um, people go through when interacting with your product. So for me, user experience is not only the interface, right? In, in that sense, you could say, oh, and some people say, right, user experience is usability, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and there is a lot of discussions in the field about that. 
But for me, UX goes wider than that. It's like the entire aspect of you um, uh, interacting with that product. It can start from pre-purchase, if it's something physical or something digital too, right? Uh, through that entire process, you getting it, you um, using it, uh, supports after that, like the entire aspect of like what, how that product influences your life, right? And so it's not what is below, right? Mm -hmm. So if, if like everything below, like the, the entire technology that makes all of that magic work, that is what obviously creates the user experience, but the user experience is what the people go through. Mm. Um, and yeah, so that's how I look at it from a very holistic perspective. I stopped caring about the definitions when I left academia. It was really important to me when I was in academia and really unimportant nowadays when I'm not. Like we have nobody asking these questions at Google. Like uh. what is user experience? Like that, that um, is not really our concern. Well, I think it's one thing that we've been discussing internally now that we're hiring um, in that area as well as we get a lot of different types of applications. Um, obviously, uh, quite a few from, from MMI, so mm -hmm. thank you for that. Um, but uh, there's, there's, we also get a lot of applications from designers also, um, and, um, which I think can work, um, yep. and, it, and it does work, um, but we here at the moment we kind of see it as two different disciplines and it's something that we'd like to kind of separate from each other for the time being at least see yeah. see what kind of direction that goes in well we did we separated two right we have multiple ux disciplines at google we have designers we have researchers yeah. which are the 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 biggest uh, disciplines but we have writers ux writers mm -hmm. which are super important uh, because language is a really important part of a user yeah. experience we have uh, ux engineers uh, so people who create a lot of like interactive prototypes for testing and and to to iterate on the experiences, uh, we have program managers because we're huge now and so we need people to run the programs, um, and like even within the disciplines you have different um, like facets right in design you have voice interface designer is completely a different thing than a motion designer yeah. and a, than an interaction designer. Um, and so, or, or in research, we have quantitative researchers who, who focus a lot on like big data, mm -hmm. while um, a lot are qualitative researchers and focus on the more qualitative traditional methods within UX. Um, and I do think that is a strength to separate the roles, but um, there is a lot there is a lot of gray zones in between. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes there are people who have strength in both, or they were in the role where they had you to use both. Um, so that's fine too. So you need to explore for yourself, for your, for your company, uh, what you need. But I'm a believer that um, there is a strength to having different disciplines and them informing each other. Mm -hmm. So if a designer creates a design, it's good if the designer doesn't have to test that themselves mm. because they are way too invested in the design and way too biased to test that themselves and, and have a distance, right? Um, or the other way around. If a researcher um, does... does uh, research and creates insights and go like these are the things that we should do with the product it's good if they don't have to think how to do it right if they can basically bring the insights and then work with the designer who is a professional in that to figure out how that could be integrated in the product that's fascinating and it's uh, you know, um, food for thought definitely for us as well uh, definitely right now at this kind of uh, intersection between like how can we provide the best possible service towards our clients as well um 
So you've given us uh, quite a lot of insight in your in your past and, and your present. Um, I'd be uh, really excited to see kind of hear where you think your career path might lead you in the future also. It seems yeah. like you're in a pretty good place at the moment. <laughs> but um, you know, with, with the change that's happening, and this is something that we've been talking about um, on, on the podcast as, a lot as well, it's like how much has happened in the last 20 years. Um, and if you kind of uh, calculate that forwards, how much could happen in the next 20 years? So um, you and I, I think we're probably mid-career at the moment. Um, there's There's a lot of potential kind of... Like where could we head? Where could we be? Um, yeah. any, any thoughts from your side? I'm useless with that kind of stuff, <laughs> man. <laughs> You're a Buddhist and live in the moment. Um, so I lived my entire career like like very short planned, which is funnily something I don't recommend students doing. So when they come to me, I'm like, oh, you should have a plan. You should think <laughs> where you want to go. You should have a story and a career and then be strategic about uh, what you learn and, and, and what you do. But I didn't that do that for myself. I mean, if you remember the story about me starting in clinical psychology and just randomly dropping into something else, um, I did that throughout my entire career. So I, one of the things I I try to um, communicate to people that I coach and mentor also at Google is, so there's a lot of people who are really focused, very closely focused on their career and the career progression and the speed and moving up the ladder and all these kind of things, right? And um, I'm a believer that this is not a good thing for for you and uh, often also not a good thing for your career trajectory. If you're focused on the goal, you forget that the journey is actually the important thing. Mm -hmm. And so it's like if you go hiking, then you do it because you enjoy the the path right you don't it's not about the end goal yeah you want to climb this mountain then you will enjoy the view all good right but the path there is what is important else you would fly with helicopter mm -hmm. or, or take the gondola and so and and for me that is the metaphor i use for for your career right the important thing of career is actually the path not the end goal so mm -hmm. you getting promoted cannot be the goal right the path to promotion is what should excite you and then the promotion will come as a natural outcome of that and as a consequence of that thinking i am really very much in the present so i do enjoy what i'm doing right now and the moment that is no longer the case i will look out and go like what is the next thing i should do mm -hmm. and so that's why my managers always struggle with me when they ask me where do you see yourself in five years because i cannot answer that question except saying here because I really love that, and I love that you're my manager, and I hope this will stay like that forever until I'm retired. And if that ever changes, then I will solve that. Um, so I'm not the right person to tell you <laughs> um, uh, about where to go uh, in, in, of all the options you have, except telling you, follow that what makes you happy. Yeah, cool. I think that's actually a perfect place to kind of finish this talk. Sure. Thank you so much for being our guest. Thanks for having me. We have reached the end of this digital experience podcast. Thanks for listening. For further information about us, please head over to weawondrous.com.